0: information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as legal accounting or other professional advice always consult with your own legal accounting or other professional before making any investment welcome to real life real estate investing a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on 89.3 FM WMKV.
1: And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, your nation's public radio source for all the latest real estate investing, news tips, techniques, advice, you know, the whole nine yards. And of course, here on Real Life Real Estate, we're very big on the idea of real estate education. And it is uh, to that end that we always talk about the upcoming Cincinnati REA meetings now. I know we have listeners from all over the United States and some of you all are going, jeez cincinnati Rhea. i'm hearing too much about cincinnati Rhea. i don't live in cincinnati well find your local real estate investors association by going to nationalrea.com that's national reia.com cincinnati Rhea happens to be the coolest real estate association in the entire world but i'm sure there's one slightly less cool but just as educationally valuable right in your backyard at this week's meeting of the Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati, the early meeting, is what's bugging you. It's about roaches, termites, and the ever scary bed bugs, and how to avoid them in your rental properties and get rid of them if you have them. At the 7:30 main meeting, the topic is other other people's money. Alyssa uh, Miller will be talking about how to buy properties without banks using opm strategies you can get more information about those meetings at cincinnatiria.com you can always attend a meeting your first meeting as a guest you can also get information at 859-292-7342 our topic today is contracts Ooh, exciting right contracts i think though that you're going to find that there's a lot that you might not know about contracts and uh since we use them every single solitary day as real estate investors, it's kind of an important topic I have with me today. James Flax, a Cincinnati area attorney specializing in real est- working with real estate investors and their contracts and entities. You can call in with your contract questions at 877-772-9658 anytime during the program today. Or you can send us an email by going to askvina.com, filling in the response form. And this week in particular, please let us know from where you are writing because James is a licensed attorney in the state of Ohio. And if your question is very specific to some other state, uh, he may have to defer from answering that. So, having said that, uh, joining us by phone is James Flax. James, welcome to Real Life Real Estate.
0: Thank you, Vina.
1: Uh, glad to have you with us. Um, I know that this is uh, one of your favorite topics to rail about uh, to real estate investors because, uh, again, every single solitary day we use contracts. And yet uh, it seems like a lot of people don't quite know what they're doing along the lines of work of of using those contracts so uh, let's start just by talking and I know there's a bunch of different types of contracts and purposes of them but let's start uh, just with a a quick summary of what it is that we need to know about contracts in general well
0: I think one of the problems that I see investors have is that investors don't really understand the relationship between the contract and the deal or whatever transaction the contract is meant to memorialize. Uh, the, the thing that investors kind of miss often is that the contract isn't really something separate. It's just its this is the written form of the agreement you've reached, whatever that agreement is, whether it's an agreement to let someone live in a piece of property for a year for a certain amount of rent, or if it's a purchase contract, um, it, it is the agreement. That's the heart of the contract. And there's nothing in the contract that's not part of the agreement. Um, the way this, this kind of disconnect seems to manifest a lot of times is investors trying to sort of hammer a square peg into a round hole by using a form of contract they have, for one transaction to do another, just by adding some language in or changing a few words around. And that doesn't really work very well because, as I said, there's no part of the contract which isn't in your agreement. It may not have been intended to be in your agreement, but as soon as you sign the contract, you've put it in there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I, this uh, plus difficulties in understanding you know when to and whether to use legalisms. They can create a lot of uh, ambiguity, a lot of confusion in in your contract. You know the the things to remember about a contract is there any contract that's drafted is written for two audiences, one, and that's you and your partner, whoever you're doing business with. It's it's used to you is as a memory aid. You know you have a contract that may not be completely carried out for several years in you know in case of say a land contract or a long-term lease or even certain kinds of purchase or option to purchase contracts and while everybody may think they understand everything perfectly on day 1 when you sign it 6 months a year 18 months down the road something comes up there may be some disagreement and you have the contract there to refer back to The other audience, and this is where clarity is really, really important, is in case things fall apart. You know, you need to be able to take this contract into a court and have the judge or the jury take a look at the contract, say, yeah, it says person X will do Y, and person X hasn't done Y, so they owe some money to the other side. That can be very important in, you know, almost any kind of contract.
1: Mm hmm. Now, in thinking about the going to court thing, I mean, that's that's something we always want to avoid, if possible, <laughs> because it's expensive and not to mention stressful. Uh, but when a when when one of these contracts goes to court, in other words, you know, I'm I, we, yes, we've written it down, but now there's some disagreement as to whether it really says this or it really says this. How is the court going to typically come down on contracts that that seem ambiguous or where where what we're arguing about wasn't actually in the contract
0: well there's there are actually a whole list of rules of of what is called contract construction that the courts have uh, and used to make those kind of determinations uh, For example, uh, there is a basic rule of contract construction that says that you will construe a contract against the party that drafted it, which means that the person who wrote it is assumed to have had the right and the power to put their point of view forth clearly. And if there's something that can be taken as either benefiting them or benefiting the other side, the court's going to assume that it was meant to benefit the other side, because if it was meant to benefit them, they would have drafted it more clearly. Now, as a matter of fact, that may not be the case at all. It may just be a case where somebody was sloppy in drafting their agreement, and now they're unhappy about how it's being construed by the court. But you know, the court in that situation is in, in a totally impossible position. It's not that the court wants to harm one party or the other in the contract. It's that the court doesn't know. And you can have all the testimony in the world of you know, he said, she said, back and forth, You know when it comes down to these points of disagreement the two sides are going to disagree and the testimony is going to be in disagreement obviously um there are other provisions uh in most kinds of contracts if it's a if it's a fairly common type of transaction the courts will look to the practices and traditions and in customs of the industry Um, in other words if everybody else doing business in your state more or less agrees to handle things certain ways. An example of this would be closing costs. There, there tend to be customary divisions of closing costs uh, in most different jurisdictions. Uh, they differ widely from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, though. Um, but if you leave your contract non-specific about closing costs they, and a court gets involved, they'll divide them up according to the customary practice.
1: Mm-hmm. Which means if you're doing something that uh, is different than the tradition, such as dividing the closing costs differently, or even something as simple as a lease option that seems very common to us is not necessarily common to a court, Uh, it's, it's particularly important then that the contract be very clear and say exactly what it is meant to say.
0: Absolutely. In fact, I would recommend at any time, in any situation, you make the contract as clear as you possibly can and if that means that you need to hire someone to, to draft it for you, it's often money well spent. If it's something that you know is fairly standard, there are things you can do to improve your clarity. Uh, an example of that uh, in purchase contracts we, we tend to have a pile of printed purchase contracts that we take out with us when we go looking at properties. At some point in the process, it's not a bad idea to then just go back to the office. Type out a clean copy that doesn't have all those initial changes and, you know, sentences written in between lines and asterisks and arrows pointing to here and there. If you've done a lot of that, if you've made a lot of changes, go back, type up a clean copy, send it off to the other side, get a a vote to sign it. it. It'll just, it will help in the long run because it can be very hard to tell if there's been 12, you know, counters made back and forth, which price was actually agreed to. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Okay, very good. We need to take a quick break. I want to uh, remind listeners, today we are talking about contracts. So if you have questions about contracts in general or specific contract clauses you've seen, uh, give us a call at 877-772-9658 or send us an email by going to com, Click the Ask Vina a Question button and fill out the response form there. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today is James Flax, an attorney who works with a lot of real estate investors and has been now for three or four years here in the greater Cincinnati area. Uh, We're talking about contracts. So if you have any questions about contracts, give us a call at 877-772-9658 or go to com and ask me a question send uh, fill out the response form and be sure to say where you are writing from because james's answer might very well change depending on where you are and uh james we already got one question in over the break uh, this is from rob who lives in youngstown he says i live in ohio in pennsylvania they have something called a plain language lease I've seen it and I really like it because it says what I want it to say and I think it would be a lot easier for the tenants to understand. How important is all the legal jargon? Would a lease like this be enforceable?
0: Absolutely, it would be enforceable. There is no requirement ever that you must use legalese. It, it is more and more common for attorneys to be doing what's called plain language drafting. Um, simply because at the end of the day, while it's nice for attorneys to have this arcane secret knowledge, if the clients don't understand their contracts, they can't really fulfill them, can they? (laughs) So there's a lot of momentum behind plain language drafting. Now, there are going to be times in a contract where legalisms are very useful. Uh, The reason for using them is that they're They are a jargon. Every one of those legal terms has a very specific meaning to other lawyers. And when you use them, it's sort of a a shortcut, saying something like, you know, just to give you this really common example, here and after. And that's a really odd word that you would never see anywhere else. And I think about half the spell checkers out there don't even recognize it. And all it really says is, from here on out in this contract, whenever I use this word, here's what I mean. Bob Smith here and after referred to as Smith. Uh, in that situation you're only saving, you know, the name Bob. But if you have a company company name that's potentially I don't know, seven or eight words long, such and so company of Southwest Ohio or what have you. Shortening that to a an abbreviation or to one word in a several hundred page document where it's going to be referred to in almost every paragraph. Makes your life a lot easier, both as the guy re- reading it and the guy drafting it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That said, in a situation like a lease, your defined terms are going to be things like Mary and John Smith, here and after referred to as the tenant, and you know, one two three Main Street Properties Ltd, here and after referred to as landlord. And I think just about anybody can handle that. <laughs> yeah we're not we're not getting into some real archaic stuff there a lease is a perfect place for some very plain language drafting
1: okay now uh what he did not ask this question but let me let me ask on rob's behalf if he is <laughs> getting a lease from a friend of him of his who is a landlord in pennsylvania and rob is renting properties in ohio are there any other steps that he should take
0: well there's two possibilities here. I think there's, there's two ways to go about solving the problem that this could, could raise. First, Bob could take it to a lawyer to review and change. Uh, the reason that would be a good idea is, obviously, state laws vary very, very much, and they vary in the area of landlord-tenant law as much as in any area of law. This can be very, very significant when you've drafted your your lease in such a way that you can no longer evict your tenant or you've agreed to take a security deposit, which in Ohio is going to trigger some responsibilities that it might not in another state. So you, you need to know what's in your agreement, and it needs to be as much as possible in accordance with Ohio law, because obviously... Things that are in the agreement that are against the law are not enforceable. And if there's enough of them, or if they're significant enough, the whole contract may not be enforceable. Now, the other way he can address this uh, is Bob can go to law school and spend three years there, and probably even without taking the bar exam, get enough knowledge to be able to to tell whether his contract's enforceable. And I think the lawyer's probably cheaper.
1: Okay, very good, Bob. So law school or an attorney review. Um, We're sending quite a few questions actually via the AskVena.com website. Um, Wow, (laughs) this one may may not be answerable in the way in which it is asked. Uh, This one is from Marion in Atlanta, and she says, can you please give me a short explanation of land trusts? I've been told they provide asset protection and that they don't. I'm very confused.
0: The person who said that they don't was right. The person who said that they do was wrong. Um, that's the short version. A-, a land trust is a device for holding title to a piece of property in a name other than your name. What a la- what a trust is to move away from a land trust is a. It's basically a contract between the person who sets it up, called the settler, the trustee who takes title to all the property in the trust and administers it according to the instructions the settler gave him, and the beneficiary, the person for whose benefit the trustee is supposed to hold this property. Now, a land trust kind of collapses a lot of this. First of all, the settler and beneficiary are often one and the same party. Second, the instructions that the trustee is given by the settler in a land trust are, do whatever the beneficiary tells you, no matter what. Do nothing on your own. Do only what the beneficiary tells you. The whole point of this is to make something that would otherwise have to be titled to you or your company instead show up in the public record as so-and-so trustee. That – some people will, will claim that that provides asset protection because they – That means that attorneys can't find you. That's not really true. They're they're going to be able to find you. There are a number of ways in which they can find you, varying from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Some of them are simply that you can track down where utility bills are being sent, and that's going to give you a real good idea if the utility bills are being sent to the same address as 123 Main Street, LLC. It's a pretty good bet that 123 Main Street, LLC, is somehow involved or related to the ownership of the the property what an L, what a land trust can do is make some otherwise difficult transactions simpler because it enables a transfer of ownership of real estate without a simultaneous recording of a of a transfer of title because your trustee can then become trustee for the new owner who comes in on the on the beneficial interest side um, don't really want to turn this whole thing into a, a land trust lesson, so I'll just leave it at that. And I think that's that's the basics of it.
1: Okay, so so no on the asset protection issue. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no on the asset protection issue. Let, let's stress that. Okay. To protect your assets, you need to set up some form of an entity, either a corporation, uh, limited partnership, LLC, something of that sort.
1: Okay. Very good. Um, and we haven't, we have another question yet. Uh, and you know, folks who want to ask questions of James can do what these folks are doing and send them uh, via the com website. You should have to log in there and then push a button that says, well, you don't push a button, you know, click a banner that says ask Vina a question. And then there's a place where you can fill in the question and then where you are writing from. And then, uh, we will get it here, uh, via email, just like, uh, We are all of these other ones. Uh, Okay, so this one is from Mike in Chicago. He says, I wrote a purchase contract with a seller who was an executor of a property. The property is full of stuff, and the purchase contract said that the property would be in broom-clean condition at the time of the closing. The closing was supposed to happen three days ago, but the property is not cleaned. It's going to cost me approximately $2,500 to haul all of this stuff out of here. Is there anything that I can do?
0: Well, you haven't closed yet, according to the question. Um, you could walk away and insist on getting your earnest money back, which I think you would be entitled to most likely. It sounds like they're, they're in breach of the contract. The condition of closing was that... They would have it in broom-clean condition. Uh, or you can could potentially sue them for the damages, the cost of getting it into broom-clean condition because they promised to provide it in that condition. Or, and this is probably the most reasonable, you could call them up and say, I will either close it in broom-clean condition by so-and-so date or I'll close it for $2,500 less. And I'll take care of dealing with the the garbage, and see what they say.
1: And that and that brings up an interesting uh, um, thing that happens in contracts, which is requirements with no teeth in them. To, <laughs> to say, to say, uh, I guess it's really not that 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 this particular thing didn't have any teeth in it, because as you said, Mike doesn't have to close. Right. They they said he said I'll you know I'll. The property will be in broom clean condition it's not but I'm betting you that Mike is sitting there thinking but if I don't close I'm gonna lose my profit which is hopefully significantly more than $2,500 which puts him in the weird position of having to decide whether to go forward with something that he didn't agree to and doesn't want to do or potentially lose the whole deal so how how, how could he have done this in a way that it was either you know broom clean condition or else something happens
0: Well, you could have drafted that clause as, like I said, with the negotiation. You could have actually had the clause say, if the property is not in broom clean condition to the satisfaction of purchaser, the price will be reduced by X dollars. And then you could just go ahead and close with, you know, that reduction already in place. As far as forcing someone to do something, you're You can't really do that i I know this is a big frustration of everyone including the lawyers involved in dealing with contract disputes is the whole notion that somebody has promised to do something you you've gone forward your side of the transaction on the assumption they're going to actually do it and then they don't and none of the remedies ever seem fully satisfactory because even if you can get damages you're going to have to take them to court Maybe you can collect court costs. Most likely you can't, which means that whatever it costs you to go to court is going to come out of the recovery you get, which means you're not being fully made whole. Or even if you do get a full recovery, it could be you know, a a year or more down the road when you actually get what you had wanted to have. And the whole thing could have been avoided by the other party actually just performing their their promises but that's the unfortunate catch-22 you you have to in order to enforce something that someone is not doing their part on you your recourse is to take them to court and the courts move slowly so obviously most of the time with little disputes people either just give up or they settle for something less than what they really wanted in order to get the deal done and i i think that To some extent, that no matter how well you draft your contracts, there's always the aspect that the other side has to actually perform that you're going to end up coming up against.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, we need to take another break. When we come back, we will talk about the top mistakes that real estate investors make when using contracts. You can give us a call at 877-772-9658 or send us an email by going to com. Welcome back to real life Real estate investing. The topic today is contracts i 'm talking to James Flax, who is a, an attorney here in the Cincinnati area who deals with contracts and asset protection issues for real estate investors uh, all over the area here so we 're talking about sort of the sort of the basics of contracts and and uh, james 's fairly lengthy experience now in uh, dealing with issues regarding contracts for real estate investors so let's let's talk about some of the things james that you see popping up over and over and over with with the investors you deal with
0: well one of the recurring themes and i i don't want to sound like i'm just trying to to draw a business for my fellow attorneys but we do have there is a purpose to lawyers and one of the basic parts of that purpose is to actually draft and review contracts. There are a lot of investors who are very penny-wise and pound-foolish and will enter into many $1,000 transactions with a contract that they have drawn up themselves that may or may not in any way fit the requirements of their the law and their deal. An example of this Um, And I was fortunate enough to be on the other side, the side of the tenant in this dispute, which is a rarity for me. I'm usually dealing with tenants for landlords, not landlords for tenants. But this landlord had entered into a land contract with a young woman who had the good fortune to be friends with a woman who works in my office. Uh, So I, as a favor, uh, took that case. And... The dispute was about a land contract, and the landlord wanted her to pay out uh, some huge amount of money to get out of the, the land contract, and she wanted out, because the landlord was really kind of... Uh, he was kind of the the person who gives the landlords the bad name that we all then have to suffer with in all of our, our business dealings. This guy was out to get every penny he could out of the property and put no pennies back into the property. And there were a number of issues that he had promised to fix that he had not done. Uh, She was like a year into this land contract and she wanted out and she wanted to get out just by paying a month's rent, which seemed fairly reasonable to me uh, given the circumstances as she had described them. So I get a copy of the land contract and look it over and lo and behold, not only is this thing not enforceable as a land contract for a variety of reasons, including the fact that he had never recorded it, it did not list the underlying mortgage in it, it didn't describe the premises properly, it didn't uh, – the the party that he had uh, – that was representing the landlord's side, the person who had signed it on his behalf, uh, was a company that was not the company that was on title to the property when I checked it. uh. There were other things. There's, the Ohio land contract form is more or less dictated by by statute. You know, there are a number of things that have to be in it. And I think that there were like 13 things about this land contract that didn't meet the statute. Um, so from that perspective, it was you know fine. We could get this thing turned into a lease. In a situation, as most of you, I'm sure, are aware, you're generally only going to be able to recover one month's rent if a tenant breaks a lease early. Uh, but it was even better than that, because we were we had the choice. We could either look at this thing as a lease and pay one month's rent, or look at this thing as a land contract that the landlord had breached from the beginning and get out with paying nothing. And I, I elected to take that latter course, because the landlord <laughs> was trying to claim that she owed the full purchase price under the land contract. That was what his his position was. And the problem is, he apparently didn't understand what he'd done. A land contract doesn't allow you to collect the full purchase price. The, the tenant-buyer land contract can always... I mean, probably shouldn't go too much into this, because who knows how many tenant-buyers are listening that will turn around and bite my, uh, my landlord clients. But the the tenant-buyer is really only on the hook on a month-to-month basis for the payment in, under a land contract. You've got the right to get them out as the landlord, and they're not on the hook for the purchase price if they leave. So we just you know, moved the woman out and sent a letter demanding the deposit back. And we never got the deposit back, but we never had to pay an extra month's
1: rent either. Mm-hmm. And this was all because this guy decided that he was smart enough to do his own land contract.
0: He was smart enough to do his own land contract. And I think from some of the language in the opening paragraphs, he, he had somebody else's in front of him that he was looking at. And he just picked and chose those parts of it that sounded good to him. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And it, and it's not and that's I mean that's a that's a particularly heinous example of this thing about people thinking they can draft their own contracts because the the rules as to what need to be in in a land contract in Ohio are pretty clearly spelled out in the Ohio Revised Code. And if he had just Googled land contracts in Ohio, <laughs> that would have.
0: Well, oh, there's probably twenty forms online. <laughs> I mean, I. I, I if if I was walking into Ohio today and going to do a land contract, if you called me up to do a land contract, I I wouldn't draft it from you know word one. I would go get a form that I found online, and go through it and make sure that it met all the requirements, and take out anything I didn't like and clean it up. But you know there, these these resources are out there. You you don't necessarily have to have a lawyer charge you thousands of dollars to draft everything from scratch a couple hundred bucks to review some documents is more than sufficient a lot of the time.
1: Mm-hmm. And and many times if you're doing the same deal over and over once you have the draft, you know, once you have the, you know, here's 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 what a land contract looks like, you can just use it over and over. So the 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 cost to have something attorney reviewed uh is is fairly minor compared to the cost of uh somebody walking away from what you thought was uh particular kind of deal and paying you nothing because you wrote the land contract wrong?
0: Well, absolutely. And, you know, a land contract or a lease or anything like that, I think any person of even average intelligence can just, or below average intelligence, you can look at the contract and see what is specific to your deal. The names, the amount, the property address, the dates, everything else is the contract. You know, just switch the put the new name in, plug the new dollar amount in, plug the new property address in and you're good. You don't have to have me review it every time or somebody else review it every time. No, once is more than enough.
1: Yeah, it's it's just when you it's just when you make that agreement with the tenant that you're going to drop $65 a month off their rent because they're going to take care of that one and the house next door and you want to put that in the contract, that's when you need to take it back to the attorney because I've seen I've seen actually in that specific instance many times people get into that deal with their tenant. They either don't put it in the lease at all, or if they do, they put it in in such a way that there's no downside to the tenant for not mowing lawn. <laughs> so basically, they've leased a house for 65 bucks a month, less than they meant to, and put no teeth in it in case the tenant didn't do what he was supposed to do.
0: Put no teeth in it, and and in other cases, just not even thought the thing through. One of the things that we are trained to do as attorneys is when we look at a Transaction. Look at the contract for a transaction, or even just or helping negotiate a transaction. We're trying to think of potential pitfalls. You, as a business person, are, are your mindset is what's the upside? How can I make money on this? What do I need to do to make money? Our job is to come to you and say, well, yes, that's all wonderful, but if X, Y, or Z happens, here's what's going to happen to you, and how can we protect you against it? You need to do a little thinking like that if you're trying to draft it yourself, um, and you want to do that thinking even if your lawyer is drafting it for you. Because honestly, uh, while I may know the contracts and I may know a decent amount of the, about real estate at this point, you know, many of you know much more than I do about real estate, and much more, certainly much more than I do about your transaction. So, if there's something you're actually worried about, make sure you always bring that up to your attorney. Or if you're drafting something yourself, make sure that you cover that thing that you're really worried about.
1: Okay, uh, we're going to, uh, I just got two more emails in, and we're going to get to those. But first, we need to take one last break. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate. If you have any questions, uh, at this point, you probably better call them in at 877-772-9658. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're talking today to James Flax, attorney at law about real estate contracts that we use all the time and problems that he sees over and over again with real estate investors also answering your questions. Uh, although we're about 10 minutes out from the end of the show at this point, so I would probably, you can take a chance on going to com and clicking the button that says Ask Me a Question." I may get that email after I leave, or you can give us a call at 877-772-9658. A uh, question here from JC from Las Vegas, who's a, 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 a common, that's not what I meant to say at all, he is a consistent listener here (laughs) to real life real estate investing he says james how do i create a two-party contract that has binding arbitration as the only remedy for non-performance and can i require the other party to agree to pay for it in advance in other words agree in advance pay for it i think is what the question actually is uh
0: okay um let me try to handle this question in more general terms uh because I don't know what the Nevada specific uh, laws on whether you can completely sign away your uh, your right to go to court yeah that's I mean that's um, that's
1: likely to vary too depending on the kind of contract it's it's usually not the case that for instance a borrower in a mortgage can agree exactly. to not go to court or the tenant in a lease can agree to not go to court but um, you see these often in, in commercial, You know, commercial type purchase contracts, for instance, where there's a million dollar building at stake.
0: If it's if if both parties are what would be considered sophisticated parties, you know, business people, people who have experience in the industry, you're much more likely to have uh, a binding arbitration clause be enforceable. Um, it is not. it, It has been popular for people to put in arbitration clauses, and either. Uh, calling for binding arbitration or at least insisting that something go to arbitration before it go to court. And that is a result of people not being huge fans of the speed at which our court system works these days. There are downsides to this. This is not something you should do just, you know, willy-nilly. There, there is a very real possibility in, in some types of business that you would be better off in court uh... there are often in a complicated situation you may not want to go to arbitration because an arbitration panel is going to try to move things along fairly quickly and it may may deal with things in a more simplistic manner than you want now the second part of this was whether you can require the other party in advance to pay for it you can certainly require them to pay for it if it's their fault that you end up in arbitration if the arbitration panel finds for you In most jurisdictions, uh, whether you can require another party to pay for it in a situation where the arbitration panel comes down on their side, I would think generally not. And if you think about that, it's pretty obvious why. I mean, if the arbitration panel decides that you're the bad guy in this and the other side did their part, they're not going to penalize them by forcing them to pay your fees. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: And they're not going to let you keep dragging them into arbitration over and over and over again just to be annoying and cost them money. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. And, you know, no, in no way accusing you, J.C., of this, but there are people out there who do things like that. Mm-hmm.
1: Which means uh, when someone else hands you a contract and says, don't worry, I've had my attorney prepare this, just sign here. <laughs> might be. Read
0: every word. <laughs> If you don't understand some of it, find someone who can tell you what it means. If it is in the contract, it is part of the agreement. And all this, oh, we'd never do that, that's just in case. Well, there are things that are just in case, but they're just in case something happens, we're going to do X, and that's what the contract says. They're not in there in some sort of hypothetical just in case where it would never arise. Mm -hmm. It may be completely in your control whether it arises or it may not be. I mean, you you have, everybody goes, not everybody, most people go into every contract they go into intending to fulfill their side. But circumstances change. People's financial positions change, and problems arise. And you're drafting this contract to protect you from having to suffer from that other party's unfortunate events mm-hmm. as much as possible mm-hmm.
1: and sometimes the the contracts are just flat out misunderstood i mean I, I, I intend to oh, wait, fill, wait, wait, fulfill wait. what i what i think this means and you intend to fulfill what you think it means we just happen to think it means two different things
0: uh, and that's that you get into that situation uh, there's almost no no fixing it if you've if you've agreed to a contract where both sides have totally separated uh expectations. It, this is one of the reasons why it's important to actually re- read through the contract they put in front of you. Because if you read through it and it looks like it might say what you think it it should, that's not good enough. You want to be pretty sure that the contract says what you think it it, it does. Not, well, I think I agreed to this and this looks like it could mean that. Well, if it looks like it could mean that, it also must look like it could mean some other things. And let's let's fix that before you actually sign it and agree to something that you're going to regret down the road.
1: Okay, unfortunate question here from John in Baltimore. He says, I was offered a home by a seller at a particular price. He's a real estate investor who owned the property himself He provided the purchase contract already signed by him. I signed it and sent it back to him with an earnest money deposit. We were supposed to close 30 days later according to the contract. A couple of weeks later, preparing for the closing, I looked it up in the tax assessor site and discovered that he had already sold it to someone else. When I called him, he told me that he had to have the money right away, and the other guy was willing to close in a few days. I would have been willing to close in a few days too, but the purchase agreement that he sent me said 30 days. He did return my earnest money, but not until after I called him. My understanding was that if I had a purchase contract signed by both the buyer and the seller and an earnest money deposit up, the seller couldn't sell the property to anyone else. Am I wrong? I've been stewing over this for eight months.
0: Okay, well, again, allowing for the possibility of differences in the law, we're getting into one of those areas um, where I tend to frustrate investors. Um, On a moral level, you're absolutely right. On a legal level, you're probably absolutely right. On a practical level, somebody else now owns the property. You can't get it. Um, It it is most likely the case that the laws of Maryland, as the laws of most states, uh, allow a bona fide third-party purchaser for value. In other words, the, the guy who bought this house from him who had no notice that you had a contract on the house, they, they're, they're probably not going to take the house away from him and award it to you in a legal action. Uh, if you can prove that you've lost money because you didn't get to buy the house, you might very well have have a cause of action against the seller. The question is whether any of this is going to really be worth fighting out in the courts. And the answer to that one, unfortunately, is probably no. Because mm-hmm. it's going to be very hypothetical, proving that you actually, what your actual losses were, and whether or not there was some possibility for you to cure those losses by using the money to buy a different property, and in that case you'd have damages of whatever the the costs were to find the new property, minus the your expected costs. and in the first transaction and blah 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 a whole bunch of complicated stuff later you've spent many thousands of dollars fighting a court case and you've recovered an amount that's very possibly less than the many thousands of dollars it cost you to fight the court case Mm -hmm.
1: so yes john he done you wrong the problem is there's not much maybe that is is good to do about it from a practical standpoint So um, I think we are out of time for questions at this point. Mike's kind of given me the cut it off here pretty quickly signal. So uh, James, I want to thank you for uh, joining us here today and sharing your wisdom about contracts. I certainly want to thank all of our listeners who sent in some great questions today, by the way. Really appreciate that. And we will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing.